Leviticus chapter 25, and it's been what we're referring to as a cosmic dream, a Sabbath of Sabbaths, the 50th year, which all things are turned upside down. Whereas much of creation that humans have been given stewardship of are brought back and given to their rightful owners. Jubilee was a reminder to God's people, to Israel, that all the blessing that they had received was gifted to them by the God who embodies mercy. So in this 50th year, this is not simply head work. This is with their entire bodies. Land is given back to rightful owners. The family heritage that held that land before. Slaves are freed. Adults, children. Loans that hadn't been paid off were actually forgiven in full. No questions asked. In the 50th year, no land was artificially planted or harvested. Everyone just actually picked what naturally would grow from the ground. And the motivation that God has for this year of Jubilee, a year that makes no sense to anybody, is because he tells his people, you must remember that you dwell in my land as strangers and foreigners. This is a reminder to my people that you don't actually own this place. You're strangers to this place, but you've received mercy. God says that the motivator behind all these upside down and nonsensical things that go down in the year of Jubilee are rooted in God's mercy in freeing Israel from their slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt and coming under his lordship. The theme that I want to trace from from this year of Jubilee, God extending his mercy to his people Israel. This is um, the point that I hope kind of lands this morning. That God's ministering to Israel allows them to be ministers of his mercy. Because Israel received the mercy of God, they are able to be ministers of mercy to those around them. Now, the thing about Jubilee that's interesting that we've talked about is that Jubilee actually goes unfulfilled in the Old Testament. We never hear of it actually taking place. No doubt it was seeded uh, as a hope in the hearts of the oppressed, but Israel never dared to love deep enough to embody Jubilee, never to love God fully with their full selves, heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so Luke picks up this unfulfilled story in his gospel presentation. His gospel writing, his good news that Jesus is Lord. This legend that has laid dormant is now dramatically, daringly being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And everyone else doesn't actually know how to respond. Jesus, as we read in Luke 4, truly in his full self, his person, his work, proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, proclaims the year that we refer to as Jubilee, a time that God reminds his people how to minister because he has ministered already to them. And now we can be ministers to the whole world. And so we come to a story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus, as Luke has already been showing, as we've already been talking about in this series, Jesus is confronted by someone who this jubilee dream, this cosmic invitation for all things to be turned upside down, it's just not clicking. 
And so we find someone coming up to Jesus. And so we start and we find our story, a well-known story in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we start. Now I invite you, some of you have heard this story told many times. My invitation, a challenge, is actually to, tr- to try to hear and try to place yourself in this story as if you hadn't heard it for the first time. So Luke, starting in verse 25 of chapter 10, we read this. On one occasion, an expert in the Old Testament law came up to Jesus and he said this, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, part of the lawyer's job in that day is not quite what we see a lawyer to be. It was actually to test and, and challenge, challenge people's interpretation of the Old Testament law. That was their role. That was their sweet spot. Not quite as a lawyer is today. And so this question, in the midst of our angst already of hearing that, that he comes up to test Jesus... We must admit that he is asking a beautiful and necessary question. How can I be a part of the blessing that God gives to all people? Commonly in the New Testament, how can I inherit eternal life, life to the full? This is a big question. A question at the start that if we're not asking, we're missing something. He's not asking the wrong question at this point. He's asking a beautiful question. Is it coming from a posture that might have some hostility? Yes, but the question itself must be asked by us. How can we live into this cosmic dream? How can we participate? And so Jesus, I love this, honoring this man's thousands of hours that he would have poured over Scripture, dedicating it to memory, actually allows him to answer it. Jesus, as he often does, asks a question. He said, what is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? Jesus points us to a nuance that I really found refreshing this week. Not simply does Jesus say, what are the words that are written down, but a deeper interpretive question. How do you read it? Maybe the question of all questions. How do you interpret this? How has the story of your life been changed by what you understand these etched Hebrew characters to mean? What for you unites the story of Jubilee? How do you read it? A beautiful question. The lawyer answers, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This response is one that we likely have heard many times, but if we actually are coming to this in the same posture as trying to be an expert in some way of Old Testament law, we have to ask a question. How and why did you link these two commands? Prior to this point, this linkage is not found anywhere in Scripture. The first command comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is Moses' final sermon to the people of Israel. This is called the Shema. It just means listen. Hear, open your ears. Israel, God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. 
This comes from Deuteronomy. But the second comes from John's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Chapter 19. A different book. Still written to the same people, but logically they're actually not connected. And so we actually have to pause and ask, why did you link these two commands? People that I were reading, they had different takes, but I think that for those of us, particularly in the church, that have heard this line, these two commands connected, again, must try to put ourselves back in the shoes of Jesus and this ruler. I think that the religious expert likely actually heard Jesus talk about this before. Maybe he heard from one of his lawyer buddies when Jesus was sharing in the synagogue to say, did you actually hear what Jesus said? The greatest commandment. He linked two things. They hadn't ever been linked before. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. I love Jesus' response. He just says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What a beautiful response. Just rest in that response that Jesus actually extends to someone, to this ruler. Do this and you will live. Connect these commands and the story in the story of your life and you will know what it is like to live in the courts of the divine for all of eternity. Just pause. That invitation is still for us. Do this and you will live. Love me with, my, with your full self. And yet, don't just hold that for yourself, but extend that to those around you. Do this and you will find life to the full. How many of you have lives that you would say maybe aren't full at the moment? Do this and you will live. But the scripture expert responds in such a typical human way. I love this in the gospel accounts. Holds nothing back. A response that I would likely make myself. Trying to justify himself, we read. He asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Put differently, how can I receive the most without giving anything away? Who is my neighbor? What are your go-to loopholes to limit how you give and receive love? This was a loophole. Who's my neighbor? It's not just to, it's, it's not simply to give love. I think it's also to receive love that we try to hop into these loopholes. Saying, I don't have to act in that way. I don't actually want to receive love in this way. What are the loopholes that you have? Your go-tos. Placing a governor, a restrictor, a, a, a narrowing effect on the story of how we give and receive love. Imagine Jesus, the truest neighbor who's made his home in the neighborhood. God in flesh coming down to earth. How could have he responded to this? If he is who he says he is, how could he have responded to this? What would common sense give him the right to do in this moment? Likely, he'd have the power to lash out and correct. Not personally. And yet, he doesn't lash out. He does not hold this over the lawyer, but instead, he tells a story of great reversal and great invitation. He tells a story. A parable. 
Parables often ask the truest question. When we ask the wrong question, Jesus responds with the story. And in the story, we find the truest, most life-giving question that we can ask. But he tells it. Because we live life as people with other people. So Jesus, in reply, says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half naked and half, uh, half dead. A priest happened by chance to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, another minister, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a half-breed Israelite deserter, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and there he took care of him. And the next day... He took two days' wages out of his pocket. He gave it to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. This story that we've labeled the Good Samaritan, which I personally think is just a mistitle through the roof. A Good Samaritan, as if no other Samaritan could possibly act in this way if they had met the living Jesus. Maybe this is why we continue to our misunderstanding of how God welcomes the nations to himself. But back to the story. The parable is set in an Israelite territory. This is important. It's Israelite. It's not a foreign land. Maybe we call it a church territory on a road from the hub of the Israelites, the temple in Jerusalem, to the hub of priests and Levites, Jericho. A man who very well may have been in the temple the day before, Embarks on his journey. He's beaten to smithereens, naked, left for dead, in need of being ministered to. And and good thing that he needs to be ministered to because, as the Greek says, luckily, by chance, somehow in providence, a minister, a priest, is right on his tail. This priest may have had a hand in making this man clean in the temple days earlier, but we read, when he saw the man, He passed over to the other side. We've been reading this story in our youth community for the last little bit. And one of the youth said, like, how much discomfort would you have to feel to legit, like, move your body to the other side of the street when you see something? What type of scenario or or person that you see makes you respond in this way and not simply just hide yourself or hide your child or, or, or just ignore them as you walk past? Second, another minister, a Levite, religious elite, does the same thing, seeing the man cross to the other side. And if you're like me, when you see something that you don't like, you can just ignore it. We do this in Vancouver all of the time, if we're being honest. Often with people, I don't actually want to interact with this person, so see you later. You're now removed from my vision. But a Samaritan, the Jubilee-inspired twist. 
arrives. Think about this, traveling, traveling on an Israelite road, already a place that is not his own, but one marked likely already by racial, uh, racial slurs, hatred, a place where he is not actually welcome to be. The Samaritans were regarded as half-breed deserters of Israel. In 8th century Israel, the kingdom was divided into two different parts. The northern part was Israel, the southern part was Judah. The people in the north were taken over by captives in Assyria. The Samaritans were the kids of the Israelites that remained and the Assyrians who came. So from the Israelite perspective, these were the deserters. These were people that left loving God, the God of Israel, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their mind, and they just started worshiping someone else. And so at great cost to this man who is a Samaritan, who we likely would have expected to be the robber in the story. Just think about that. Likely we would have anticipated if anyone was going to beat up this innocent man leaving Jerusalem, probably would have been a Samaritan. But instead, at great cost, he stops his travels, delays his journey a couple of days to minister to this man who is near to him. His enemy. It says that the Samaritan has pity on him. The Greek word just refers to to your inward parts. Perhaps all of his heart, perhaps all of his soul, perhaps all of his strength, perhaps all of his mind. He sees this man in pity and he stops. Motivated to meet someone else in their point of pain. And we could focus on all that this half-breed and despised person offered to a member of an enemy nation. His food, his supplies, two days of his wages, plus some. Days of his time. Or we could focus on how this Israelite man would have been utterly discombobulated when he came to his senses and realized who it was that was caring for him. We could talk about that. The discomfort, the discombobulation that he would have seen, uh, he would have had receiving love from his enemy. But I want to talk about how this man from Samaria is motivated by a jubilee posture. I love this. At the end, he gives all that he has. Repayment, reimbursing, making right all that was previously made wrong in his act of ministering mercy. His response was not common sense, daring to love at great cost, unexpected by any listener of the story. But we remember that this is a parable, a strategic story asked by Jesus to challenge and ask the truest, most life-giving of questions. And so Jesus spoke, trying to replace the expert's narrowing question with a jubilee question. This is what Jesus says at the end. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The question that the lawyer asked was, who is my neighbor? The question Jesus asked is, who was a neighbor? Who is a neighbor? For far too long, we have focused on the first question. Trying to define our neighbors as if it's difficult. It's not a difficult question to answer. 
those who are near, those who you come into contact with, those who you see and engage with? Not a difficult question to answer. Our inability to reshape the narrative around who is a neighbor is proven by our continual justification of those that we simply could not show God's ministering love to. We say, there's people that I could not show love to in the way that Jesus ministers to his people. And for this so-called expert in the law, one of those people who is beyond the bounds of divine love would be someone from Samaria, someone titled as a traitor, the one who gave in to the gods of the world. But perhaps, similar to the priest and Levite who actually couldn't show mercy to their own kin. Also traitors to their own people. As I read this story, I had people naturally come to mind that I'm like, if Jesus was telling me this story instead of a Samaritan, who would he use? To knock me off my feet and be like, that makes me uncomfortable. That is a question of reversal. That is a jubilee question. Who would that be for you if Jesus was telling you this parable? Who would replace that character in the narrative? That would make you stand at a distance and be like, that, that is not possible by human strength. who is someone so far beyond the reach of God's immense love that they would be unable to communicate divine love to you. The expert sheepishly makes a response. The one who had mercy on him. Still, the cosmic vision of Jubilee cannot widen the lens of this expert to even mention the place from where this merciful man comes from. Just the one. You know the one. That one. The one who had mercy. The one who shows the unexpected counterbalance to wrath and hatred. And hostility. In the New Testament, mercy is described as an attribute that God desires for his people to have. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, we hear repeated in the New Testament. But it is a form of love that is exclusively used to describe God's posture to us. Even though it's the divine will that his people would be marked by mercy, we actually never find it except in this character in the parable. It's the only place in the New Testament where someone is described by being marked with mercy. This man from Samaria. The mer- this mercy is deeper than allyship or virtue signaling. It's a mercy that is Better than reposting an article that you think is moving on your social media. It's deeper than that. It has more depth. It's a mercy that puts aside our cultural understanding of common sense because it ministers to our categorical enemy. That's the difference. Is that this ministering is actually towards those who have extended hatred to us. This man represented in the parable the man who's traveling, isn't simply a victim. He's not the only one in this story. Actually, the person from Samaria has received similar responses in the past. 
This mercy is deep because it ministers even to the point of death. That's how far we're willing to go. And so at this point in the story, there's two reminders I have and one invitation. The first reminder is simple. Actually, they're both simple, I think. Harder to actually comprehend and apprehend with our whole being. But the first is this. God ministers mercy to us. Maybe you just need to hear that this morning. Maybe the rest of the story is difficult. I just want you to hear God ministers as a minister, a person. Actually extends mercy to you today. We are strangers, foreigners, deserters of divine grace. All of us stand in that place. Whether you've come here for the first time, whether you've been here 50 times. Jesus seems to use the wild example of a Samaritan to remind Israel just how wild it was for him to find them in Egypt, beaten to smithereens, naked and exposed as slaves, left for dead, and to heal their wounds. In the same string of laws where Israel is told to love others as themselves, A few sentences later, we find this command. Treat the foreigners among you as native-born Israelites. Treat the the foreigner as if they are your kin. Love them as yourself. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Invite the foreigner just as you do your family. Love them as yourself. Because that's how I extended mercy to you when you were a slave. When you were a foreigner. I think the so-called expert in the law forgot how to read the portion about Israel being foreigners enslaved, saved by the most merciful God. But Jesus links the commands. He stands as a jubilee reminder. This doesn't make us sit in despair. This is hope. Jesus said, you've missed it, and I want to remind you. I want to minister to you. Jesus, the physically nearest God has ever been to humanity, reminds Israel that they had the lowest, at the lowest of the low moment, they were met by the most unexpected mercies. And so I just ask this morning, where have you tasted God's ministering of jubilee to you? Where in your life? If you just pause, have you felt the ministering mercy of God as a, as a minister to you? Where have you felt that? Maybe for some of you, thinking too far in the past is difficult, so I just ask now, where are you in need to be ministered to? Where do you actually wish, with all that you had, that God would meet you and minister in your heart and extend mercy? And so the first reminder is that God ministers mercy to you, to each of us, his people. And the second reminder is this. God often uses his people as ministers. God often uses his people as ministers to others. A neighbor is a minister of God. A neighbor is someone who ministers to others in the same posture of mercy that they have been ministered to. Someone who embodies divine love with their fullness of self, all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their strength, all of their mind. But somehow the expert seems to be unable to see this link that Jesus is making. 
he cannot admit that somehow this Samaritan is, re- is reflecting the full love that Jesus has shown to each of us. That just doesn't click. It doesn't register. And I had this just as I was praying this morning. I think that I think that the world, by that I just mean the people who aren't in the church, let's say. I think that the world sees the church as a Samaritan at this point. I think, my hunch is, that if you ask people, who are you expecting the least out of to minister to people, I think that people will say, the church, look at what they've done in the past. I think that's a challenge to us. That actually as followers of Jesus, we're put in a place of being actually amongst the least of, we are being expected the least to minister to other people. And that's actually an issue. That we've missed that. And But the invitation that remains in our story is the invitation that those who are near to us in our neighborhoods, our communities, on our streets, in our workplaces and schools, long for followers of Jesus to take seriously. Jesus responds in the end. This is how he ends. Go and do likewise. A simple response yet again. Go. Do likewise. In other words, jubilee is happening. Get in on it. It's as if our neighbors are crying out, be our neighbor. Show us divine love. Minister to us. Jesus says, go, do likewise. The world actually needs this, ministering mercy. The invitation to be a neighbor is to allow ourselves to meet people in their stories of hurt and pain. It might be feeling the feelings of desert loneliness that people experience at night. Or maybe a constant feeling of being underappreciated in their work settings. It may stem from feeling utterly inadequate inadequate when it comes to loving those around them, their family, their roommates, their friends. It may arise for some of us from the feeling that we're just not doing this following Jesus thing right. In that place of hurt and pain, we are invited to be a neighbor. Because I believe those around us desire for the church to be a neighbor, even if we don't have words for it. And so I just want to end with giving us a place to start. I believe that we must start to tune our hearts to the same neighboring song that Jesus drew, to, um, drew close to his people with. Because there's no being a minister without emptying ourselves in the way of Jesus. So the neighboring song that I learned comes from a person named Michael Gorman. Simple. It's three statements. Some of you might have heard me talk about it before. It's really been something that I'm trying to use to reshape my imagination. The three lines are this. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although Jesus was God, he did not abuse his power, but became obedient to the point of death. Although X... Not Y, but Z. Although we may feel as if we are entitled to things, X, we will not respond with how that common sense entitlement 
invites us to act. Why? But instead, we will respond with Z, the way that Jesus has ministered mercy to us. That is how we will live. Although I am entitled, I will not abuse that entitlement. I will act in the way of humility. Although the Samaritan could have had this. Although I could kick this man while he is down. Because of all the hatred that he has shown to me and to my people. I will not act in a posture of hostility. But actually I will bend down at great cost and minister as a neighbor to this man. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although I could say, I told you so, and hold it over your head for the rest of your life, I will not respond in that way, but rather, I will hold you in the place where you might feel shamed. Although X, not Y, but Z. But this song is not simply to be our sole motivator as people, drawing near with Jesus' jubilee love, I think we also need to learn to acknowledge it when other people act in that way because it actually is really hard sometimes. When people extend themselves to you in love, sometimes we actually need to acknowledge you're acting as a neighbor to me. Thank you. You're acting in such a way that I actually cannot receive from anyone else or anything else but the ministering mercy that Jesus has placed deep within your full self. That you are responding in the fullness of love with all of your heart, with all of your soul and strength and mind. I think we need to learn to name the story, to see the story, to also make room for people to share those stories. Because often they can be stories of hurt and difficulty. Although X, not Y, but Z. It's marked by selflessness and avoiding loopholes like potholes. Loving in such a way that isn't common sense, but in the way that God has already ministered to us, his people, as foreigners, as strangers, as people who aren't actually entitled but have received a great gift. And so as per usual, this Jubilee story flip turns who the giver, who is the giver and the receiver of true blessing. The Samaritan who has been long disgraced, hated by Israel, unable to be named, has become the true expert in the law. Has replaced the expert with the person who would, be assume, who would have been assumed to know nothing of the law. And this is the Jubilee invitation that we would allow ourselves first to be ministered to by God. And the second is that we, we would be bold enough, even at great cost, that we would minister God's mercy to other people. Truly the one who has had eternal life ministered to them is now motivated to minister to others in the neighborly way of Jesus. And so with that, a jubilee invitation, a jubilee twist, we can rest that we receive God's mercy and also the empowerment and beauty of the jubilee promise that we can actually minister that mercy to other people. And all of this, Jesus says, is how we inherit the most eternal, everlasting ways of life.
on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you and praise you for, for the way that you come to us this week, that we might feel like we're not adequate to receive your mercy, or maybe even in the ways that we feel you're inviting us to show your ministering love, your neighborliness to someone else in our life. And I ask Jesus that in that space, would you grant us would you grant us the ability to remember the neighbor, the, this neighborly song that although we feel like we're entitled to things, we won't act upon that, but rather we will walk in the invitation of Jesus to eternal life. And so help us love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all the strength that we have and all the ways that we think. And would you also help us Extend that mercy to those who are near. In your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.